Dread Podcast Network presents... I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. I'm Marjorie Green, and I approve this message to save America, stop socialism, and stop China. Stay the fire we ought to see from life to death Doubters, the doomsters, the gloomsters, they are going to get it wrong. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to run? Where are you going to hide? Nowhere. Because there's no one like you left. What do we want? Justice! What do we want it? Let's go! I want you to know that the movement we started is only just beginning. Sometimes, that is better. Welcome to another edition of Horror Hookups on Friday the 13th Horror Podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, Horror Hookups are the special episodes, offering interviews with people from the industry, authors, directors, paranormal investigators, Sasquatch hunters. We've literally had all of them. Today, we welcome filmmaker Michael Verratti and the legendary drag performer and claimed cult leader, Peaches Christ. They are the new hosts of the podcast Midnight Mass, a hilarious and hardcore audio worship of their favorite cult movies. Each episode focuses on a unique film, filmmaker, performer, or genre, and includes special guest stars, super fans, and surprises befitting a midnight movie celebration. Michael and Peaches, welcome to the show. Thank Thank you for having us. Yes. How much fun. How much fun is this? So welcome, folks. And uh, this might be a very obvious question for both of you, but it's something that we always start with on our horror hookups, and it's this. We want to know about your horror origins. Did you grow up with horror movies? Were you maybe a late bloomer? Uh, And and Michael, why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, Well, I kind of found horror in the way that uh, some folks do in that I was terrified of everything. I was a scaredy cat growing up. Oh, dear. And uh, my parents loved to tell the story that uh, when the music would even get a little bit tense, I would run over and turn off the TV because I just didn't want to deal with it. Uh, You know, much to their behest, whatever they were trying to watch. Uh, But in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a show called USA Up All Night, and they used to show horror movies, exploitation films, cult cinema. And uh, every week I would pour over the TV guide to see what I wanted to watch. And one week, USA Up All Night was doing a double feature of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Return of the Killer Tomatoes. And uh, I became very obsessed with those titles because I didn't understand uh, slash wanted to know how tomatoes could be dangerous. And I begged... (laughs) 
And I begged and pleaded my mom to let me stay up. And she, being a very good parent, was like, okay, you can watch this, but I'm going to stay up and watch it with you. And Aww. so we made a big bowl of popcorn. Uh, the movie started, uh, and my mom fell asleep like within 10 minutes. Uh, and I ended up staying up and watching both of the films. And then how uh, USA used to do it was after the double feature ended, they would just show the movies again into the wee hours of the morning. So I watched both of those movies back to back twice in a row. And I always say that was kind of my baptism by genre because uh, the next morning, in a way, everything changed. And I do recognize that Attack of the Killer Tomatoes is a horror comedy as compared to Texas Chainsaw or all the things that I would enjoy later. But it, it opened my eyes to the idea that there was a different kind of movie out there. So I've always been sort of drawn to the idea of the forbidden or the subversive. And these were not the movies that my friends were talking about at school. These were not the movies that were being shown at the multiplex. And so when that light switch turned on, I kind of stopped being afraid of things and started being obsessed by them. And so then I would pour over, uh, you know, magazines looking for the weirdo titles, or I would pick up Fangoria and like, you know, see what they were talking about. Or we used to do tape trading back in the day where you would send away and someone would send you a Xerox copy of a list of weird movies. And you'd be like, I don't know what this is, but I want to see it. And slowly uh, my, my kind of induction to the world of the weird and macabre was complete and I've never looked back. And after eight hours of Killer Tomatoes, he never ate pasta again. It was a baptism <laughs> by a marinara. Um, thank you, Michael. And, and Peaches, how about you? What's your history with horror? Well, uh, I also was introduced to horror at a very young age. And my parents, you know, who I've asked um, repeatedly, like, when did, when did it click uh, for me? When did I discover horror? And they basically kind of say you were always into anything spooky or dark, you know, monsters um, and that sort of thing, you know, from a really young age. Like they can't remember. Um, so I guess, you know, stuff like ghosts, Halloween. I'm lucky that I have parents who really liked Halloween and growing up a, a child of the 80s, like they were really into Halloween. They would de decorate for the Halloween and kind of kind of before Halloween was a major thing. It was a big thing in my family. So that may have, you know, helped. And of course, at a very young age, I, I was obsessed with um, the idea of the Haunted Mansion before ever getting to Z Disney World. Mm. Um, but like Michael, when I got to Disney World, I was so so believing in the fantasy of it all, I threw a fit and refused to go in. And uh, my mother was afraid she was going to be arrested for child abuse because she, <laughs> she basically forced me. I was kicking and screaming, and she dragged me in there. And, and forced me to go through because it was all I talked about for six months was the Haunted Mansion and 999 ghosts and this and that. And, of course, after I went through, then, you know, my brother and sister wanted to go on other things. And all I wanted to do was go in the Haunted Mansion over and over and over and over again. So, you know, that is, you know, maybe the earliest memory because I was very young. Um, but as far as movies go, I distinctly remember um, – getting the movie or someone getting the movie from the library of all places. Cause you could actually rent movies from the library way back in the eighties. Um, and, and someone had rented psycho and I watched psycho. And I think that the shock of psycho and sort of the, probably the queerness of psycho. I don't know. Oh, yeah. but, Cause I was so young, but the, just the shock of it um, and the horror of it, you know, and obviously the, the brilliance of it, the music, the, the way it's shot, the performances, I think, you know, I was hooked after Psycho. And then from there, 
it was kind of a battle, like a video store battle, a cable TV battle with my parents. You know, I remember begging them to take me to see Poltergeist and they wouldn't, you know, um, and and they, you know, won the battle as far as uh, the movie theater goes. But once it was on ho- home box office, I probably watched Poltergeist every day multiple times a day for an entire summer, you know. <laughs> so I, I just always liked clear. it. Exactly. I lo- I loved all of it, you know. And and eventually my they gave up, you know. So by the time I was 10, 11, 12, I was renting the hardcore stuff, you know, from the video store. Remember, you know, it was kind of like uh, parents were a little more lenient in the 80s, you know. So they they tried to protect me, you know, because they thought it was weird. You know, a seven year old wanted to see murder movies, but by the time I was eleven and twelve, it was, you know, I was I knew the lines to The Exorcist. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah! Well, thank you very much. Yeah, and I, I distinctly remember at the haunted mansion, you know, when I was a child, they, you know, they spin you around and show you that there are ghosts in your cart, and I just remember thinking as a kid, I was like, how did they do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's still, it's still very clever and effective, right? You go, you, you know, I know how they do those effects, but you know, watching that ballroom scene, those ghosts, you know, dancing around, they look fabulous. Oh, sure. Now, we know that this is not the first iteration of Midnight Mass, and then it kind of all started as a stage show with Peaches Christ as the host. Uh, Peaches, can you just give us a brief history of, like, how that all got started? Sure. I, um, you know, moved to San Francisco in 1996, and I was already performing as Peaches when I moved here, or really wanted to perform as Peaches because I had created this drag character in my senior thesis film back at Penn State. Um, called Jizz Mopper, and I was, you know, also pe- also Andrew's nickname, by the way. <laughs> oh, that's so. I thought your nickname was Jizzy, uh, <laughs> little Jizzy. Well, anyway, I I uh, started performing as Peaches Christ, and I was performing with a really kind of punk rock uh, renegade, you know, outrageous group of people at the Stud, and we were doing shows every Tuesday night. Um, in in a drag kind of cabaret environment at a nightclub. Um, but of course, being a midnight movie obsessed, you know, filmmaker, aspiring filmmaker, I thought um, I should do something related to movies. And I had heard that the Coquettes, the infamous San Francisco um, hippie drag troupe of the late 60s, you know, they had done their shows at a movie theater. Um at midnight, you know, before screenings of old movies. And so I thought I was doing what the Coquettes were doing when I went to Landmark Theaters and begged them and begged them to let me do this show, Midnight Mass, and to host the show as my drag alter ego, Peaches Christ. And, like, when I tell you I was begging a guy dressed in a suit, I am not exaggerating. He was literally dressed in a suit, like, you know, the straightest, whitest, you know, preppiest guy and I'm trying to explain Midnight Mass to him, and he's trying to explain to me the business side of exhibition and and really midnight movies and saying this is not something that happens in uh, cities anymore. This is gone. It is over. Like, midnight movies have not been successful in New York, L.A., San Francisco for years. The only place they're successful is college towns. And so at that time, they were doing um, things like Uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall or um, A Clockwork Orange, you know, things like that. That was the sort of standard midnight programming. Um, And 
I said, well, this is a show. It's going to be a full show in addition to a midnight movie. And they barely gave me a shot. And I really had to prove myself. And so Midnight Mass was born in 1998. And the first film I ever did was uh, Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, the Russ Meyer film. <laughs> and um, and it did well. You know, San Francisco responded to it. And I think because it was an event, you know, rather than exclusively screening a movie at midnight, there was always an event in, in, involved. And it was hosted by this drag persona. It was just perfectly suited for San Francisco. And the week after we did Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, I did Showgirls. And it was so early, you know, Showgirls had actually only come out a, a few years early, earlier that the film booker booked the movie Striptease because they... Oh, they, no. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't imagine that I wanted to show Showgirls. And I, and I said, when, they, when I saw on the roster that it was Striptease, the Demi Moore movie, which is completely forgotten at this point, I called down to L.A., Landmark Theaters had their home office in L.A., and I said, no, 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 I, I want the movie Showgirls. And and the film booker was like, what are you talking about? Why are you booking this crap? You know, <laughs> they did not get it. And I have to say, like, I'm really proud of what we've been able to do over the years because Midnight Mass just, it grew and grew and grew. And, and I swear, because we were making money for Landmark Theaters primarily, um, I was allowed to get away with murder. I mean, it, it really is amazing. I was never arrested, you know, and, and even now looking back at some of the things that we did in that theater, um, it was outrageous, you know, and dangerous and wild. And, uh, you know, and that that's what Midnight Mass was. And of course, over the years, um, I, I outgrew the Bridge Theater, which was a 400 seat auditorium and and moved into the Castro Theater. And the Castro Theater, which is a 1,400-seat auditorium, you know, it, that meant that we weren't doing shows at midnight anymore, and, and the shows were a lot more theatrical, and there were a lot more rules involved, and, you know, some, some of that punk rock spirit, uh, unfortunately, was left behind. Remember when things were dangerous and wild? Remember that? <laughs> well, and they can be days. again. Well, let's, I've got my fingers crossed, and, and something else as well. Um, no, Peaches, <laughs> thank you for that illustrious history. It's, and I truly mean that illustrious. I'm not, I'm not just blowing smoke. Because mm-hmm. um, it's amazing. It's really amazing what you did um, oh, and what you. people came together to, to create and, and to do. Um, and, and Michael, I'm wondering now about your history with Midnight Mass. When did you um, – take it even further back. When did you first hear about Midnight Mass? When was that a thing for you? And then how did you get involved well, so Peaches first came to my attention probably about 15 years ago. We've known each other for a long time now. Uh, and it all began with a project that didn't, to be honest. I was uh, in, in the early thousands, mid thousands. I started working on a book about the history of late night horror hosts, which I'm sure was actually spurred on by uh, USA Up All Night and my love of that. And then I kind of started exploring horror hosts in different regions. And as I was interviewing different people for this book, I started thinking about what the natural progression of that idea was. Because at one point in our country, every regional television station had a horror host. You know, we had Elvira or Joe Bob or Rhonda Shear on a national platform, but the smaller markets had their own person. And sometimes it was just the, the weather guy with some grease paint and a Dracula cape. And other times it was more complicated. But uh, it, it's it was like a great moment in time in television history. And I, with the, the advent of cable and streaming and things, we started losing that. And I started looking to see 
who was carrying on that tradition. And I was surfing around on the internet. I distinctly remember this. And I landed on this page of a drag queen in San Francisco who was hosting midnight movies and celebrating them in a way befitting a late night creature feature. Of course, I didn't fully wrap my head around what she was doing immediately. But I was like, this is it. This is fascinating. This is a complete uh, extension of that spirit of that, that I'm looking at and, and want to explore. And uh, so I wanted to interview her and I shot an email to uh, her website not thinking anyone would answer and lo and behold I got an email back from Peaches Christ uh, and we did an interview and if you, I don't know if you remember that first phone call Peaches but we were only really supposed to talk a little bit but I think it was very clear that we were kindred spirits right away because we talked for a couple hours just about movies we liked and so later when Peaches made All About Evil I went out to San Francisco to see the movie and was just really taken by the whole world. And she had told me her plan to take the movie on the road and do a little bit of midnight mass in every city on this kind of traveling road show with, with All About Evil. And I pretty much was like, I want to come with you and I want to document this journey because I think you need a travel log because who else is doing this? I, you know, and, you know, we did it. <laughs> Yeah, you did. It was amazing. I was sort of like, wait, you want to come with us? Like, are you sure? Like, we're we're weirdos and you don't really know us. And Michael said, no, I really want to come. And, and, and there you were there. You joined us, you know, on the road. Yeah, that that was before he knew of the character of Deborah, you know, and what she was doing. So. <laughs> exactly. Um, let me see where I'm at here. Um, so now that we've moved Midnight Mass to a podcast format, an all audio format, what do you think listeners are, are going to expect? And, and what do you think you're giving them kind of moving it to this platform? Um, I think what Michael and I are finding is that we love this. We love these movies. I mean, for sure, 100%. But we also really love specifically the celebration around these films and the cult that has um, grown with these films over the years, the, the, the ones that we're choosing. And so the, the podcast specifically is actually a conversation about the movies themselves, but really more importantly about the way they've affected people and the way that people have formed communities around their love for these particular films. So it really is a cult movie podcast, quite literally, because we're looking at the cults themselves and the cult members and the cult leaders and, you know, people who, you know, get tattoos put on their bodies based on these films and, and go to conventions and, you know, dedicate giant chunks of their lives recreating scenes from these films that's really what the podcast is about and and i think what it what for me is nice is it's this extension of what the midnight mass stage show is but it's it's a little more cerebral it's a little more of a deep dive it's it's the kind of thing we couldn't do theatrically or on stage so it befits this medium very well and my hope is that the stage shows and the podcast kind of then sort of um feed off one another and we're able to you know um get people who listen to the podcast to you know start coming to some of these stage shows or maybe even create new stage shows you know because of the podcast um and yeah that that's the goal we'll see how it goes you know, it's interesting because Peaches and I actually were on the phone talking about the show earlier today, just, uh, you know, now that we've got a handful of the episodes in the can. And uh, 
it really relates back to our, our mutual love and uh, celebration and worship of these movies and how we're also fascinated by the lengths to which people take that worship. And Peach has really hit the nail on the head that it's as much an exploration of the movie or the cult figure of each week as it is the cult around them. Because you don't really get a cult movie without the cult community that lifted up. And uh, I, I've been really realizing that what we're making every week is sort of a mini documentary because uh, the format of the show uh, will take someone involved in, in the film, the writer, the director, a star, and we'll do a long form interview with them. And then we'll do a couple sub smaller interviews that are also part of the episode with other artists who were influenced by the work or fans who did, uh, who have devoted their lives to it. And we get kind of a fuller picture of what that looks like. I mean, for example, we have a uh, episode about a very popular teen cult film. And one of our guests is a uh, girl who recreated the entire movie week to week on her Instagram story during the pandemic. That's devotion. Wow, that is that's insane. <laughs> that's also, that you know. I I tried to figure out reels the other week. I couldn't do it. Um, but I'm also like a grandfather now. Um, now, Michael, uh, we all know this is not your first you know toe dip into into, into podcasting. Um, and and listeners will of course know your your wonderfully successful show Dead for Filth. Um, is there any of the uh, the DNA? from Dead for Filth that listeners might find in Midnight Mass? Uh, yes, I think so. And it's because if you are a longtime listener of Dead for Filth, first off, Dead for Filth, of course, is a show about the intersection of queer identity and the horror genre. And while our, the cult films we explore aren't always just horror, um, Peaches and I can't help but come at everything that we're investigating from the queer identity because that's truly mm -hmm. who we are. Um, and if you recall, too, my show always began with one question. Why horror? And I asked every single guest that over the course of 100, 100 plus episodes. And really, that's what Midnight Mass is all about. You worship at the altar of Pink Flamingos, of Jawbreaker, of Phantom of the Paradise, of Elvira or, or whomever. Why? Tell us your story. And that's what this, this show's about. So, to, so I, I view them very much... Uh, as, as, as kind of companions in their way, but also a, a natural progression of the collaborative work that Peaches and I do together, too. Yeah, so through Dead for Filth and through the original Midnight Mass, you both have had like some of the most amazing guests on your show, um, on your shows, respectively. H has there been anyone on that list that you were very intimidated to have on or maybe were there any guests that just kind of blew you away or surprised you when they actually came on the respective show maybe we'll start with peaches this time um yeah i would say that most of them uh truly did you know blow me away because so much of this uh, comes from a place of fandom for me. And so much of my career is inspired by being a fan of things. And even the movies I make are typically about movies. And the shows I do are about movies. So when I get to meet people who, you know, actually inspired this, um, it really is uh, a thrill for me. It's, it's, it's super exciting. And the first person we ever invited to Midnight Mass, uh, the first celebrity, was Mink Stoll. And, oh, you know... Oh, my God. Yeah, I I mean, I grew up in Maryland, and so the discovery of John Waters and Divine and Mink Stoll um, blew my mind. You know, I was in junior high when they were making Hairspray, and that was really a crossover movie. And that was a big deal for me because I thought Hollywood was a million miles away. So to hear that they were making a movie in Baltimore, you know, a place I knew very well, 
blew my mind. And then when I heard that the mother of the fat girl in the movie is played by a man, I was fully obsessed, but had to pretend I wasn't, if you know what I mean. Uh, it was kind of <laughs> like, oh, okay, yeah, that's interesting. Meanwhile, I'm like, what? What the fuck? <laughs> Who is this divine? You know, I was obsessed. Um, and so my entrance into the world of cult movies was really through divine. And of course, Frankenfurter um, at that age. And I think it's why my drag is so infused with cult cinema. It's That's really where my obsession came from. And Elvira, of course. Um, so, so when Mink stole... You know, someone whose dialogue I had uttered and memorized, you know, for so long, decided to come to my show in San Francisco. It blew my mind. And then, you know, we ended up repeating that show multiple times. And she gave me the confidence to, you know, keep going and invite more people. Um, and, and, you know, Mink is, you know, who reintroduced me to John Waters. And and John, of course, I was completely um, intimidated by and you know, obsessed with, and, you know, he's just sort of, he's sort of like the, the father figure, you know, he's like the godfather for me, you know, and, um, the fact that those people have not only done my show, but then invited me into their lives and befriended me and helped me and become mentors, um, and friends, you know, of course, Michael got to meet Mink because she was on the tour with us for a lot of the, you know, that's still to me all these years later, um, through all these years of close friendship, it's still, really touches me and it's really beautiful to me that you know john mink elvira tura satana i mean these people not only did they invite me into their lives they they really became important friends to me and have helped me out over the years uh immeasurably so yeah i mean i thought you were going to ask who showed up and disappointed me or was oh. you know a diva or because An- that, that, another, that another good question <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll pass. Uh, I'll let Michael answer. Um, as far as being intimidated, you know, it's interesting. Um, Any time I sat down with a guest on Dead for Filth, whether it was someone that I have worked with or known personally through the industry or it was a hero of mine, uh, there was always that moment of, of just quiet contemplation because for me that show was all about preserving their history. I was having an organic conversation with these people where they were telling me their story. And I wanted to make sure that I got it right, not only for my listeners, but for them. And uh, I'm very lucky because before Dead for Filth happened, uh, I had uh, kind of a long-term run of hosting live events where I would talk with different uh, film icons and things. So I kind of felt ready to do the show. Uh, but I will say, uh, you know, just in, in, in honor of playing along with the question and in truth, the one interview that uh, when I sat down when, to do for Dead for Filth that kind of was uh, a uh, really frozen moment in time where I was like, I can't believe I'm getting to do this was when I had Veronica Cartwright on. Because wow. uh, Veronica Cartwright truly is someone who has been there for film history. She was in The Birds. She was in Alien. She was in Witches of Eastwick. Her her resume is fantastic. And, you know, to sit there with her and have her tell you stories about, you know, fetching Alfred Hitchcock's tea. Uh, yeah, th- yeah. Those were just, like, really amazing. And what I thought was really cool about that interview, too, was that you could see at the beginning of it, while we were sitting in the studio together, she was kind of 
doing what a uh, seasoned star does. She like, you know, I'm going to tell the stories they want to hear. Like, you know, I would ask a question and she would somehow tie it to the birds or whatever. And it was very, very rehearsed in the way that she's been doing this her whole life. And then there was a moment and you can even hear it in the episode where it kind of clicks for her. Oh, we're just shooting the shit and we can have some fun. And then there's a whole subject shift. And she, she, during her conversation with alien, says to me, well, you know, the alien is basically just a giant dick. Like, <laughs> you like, you know, she's like, it's a big penis. And then she, she like put her hand over the mic. She's like, I can say that, right? And I was like, you absolutely can. And it was sort of like the light bulb. Veronica Cartwright's like, oh, I get to talk dirty on this show. And then it was like off to the races. And that was a joy because I, get to, I got to have that moment. And it was amazing. Um, so speaking of guests and speaking of Midnight Mass, are there any dream guests that you guys are really trying to go after for uh, for your guys' new show? Uh, for, well, I, you know what's funny? I hadn't thought about it as far as the podcast goes, um, but because I, I, I'm really hanging on to a few. I, I feel like I've been so lucky uh, as Peaches with the stage shows that I've I've been able to get so many yeses from people that I never would have imagined, you know. Um, but there are a few holdouts that I, you know, would um, just kill. I would literally murder someone to get, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to get Elizabeth Berkeley to come and do uh, a Showgirls event. Pro- probably because I was such a big uh, part of, you know, making that occult movie. I- I'm not ashamed or too um, modest to tell you it's because of me that showgirls. (laughs) (laughs) But also because I feel like um, as a drag performer who loves this movie, I feel like not only is the movie misunderstood, but I also think that our love for it is misunderstood. I think there's this sort of idea that we're merely making fun of it. And the truth of the matter is, I think Elizabeth was unfairly hung out um, on on a cross, you know, she was crucified after that movie came out. When the men who who actually, you know, wrote and directed the movie, Verhoeven and Esterhaus, you know, kind of just went on with their lives because they're men. And, you know, it's like, wait, this woman who actually gave this incredible performance because the director was pushing her to do, a, a, you know, a, a, a 15 when she should have been doing an eight. You're going to you're going to blame her for this. Uh, no, she's the hero here. She's amazing. And I want to celebrate her. Um, and understandably, she's very, uh, you know, hurt by what happened with that movie. And, um, you know, of course, we have mutual friends. And I've, you know, been in communication with her. She's very reluctant to do a show like mine. And I would love for her to do it because she, it, I think the fear is that it would be a, a situation where she's being snickered at or made fun of. And the reality of it is, as John Waters says, it's an evening of gay worship. And it's true. <laughs> you know, she would have, you know. 1,400 queens living for her and that kind of energy, you know, she would feel it. She would feel the the genuine mm. uh, earnestness of our love and our appreciation for her. And I would much rather do a show honoring Elizabeth uh, or Gina Gershon than, you know, Paul or Joe. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Elizabeth or Gina or the two of them together, that would be a dream come true. And then just just for sheer fascination's sake... I would be willing to put on a, a suit of armor and and do a show for 
for you know the masses uh, with Faye Dunaway, um, <laughs> because I mean, regardless of what happens, as, as long as I make it off the stage alive, I think it would be Come worth on, it. Yes. You know? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, you know, Elizabeth Berkeley should know this by you know now. Even when she came to the convention that we went to, she we were wearing our Friday gear, and as soon as she saw our logo and saw what we were named, she did the uh, the dance number. You know, right oh, at us. Amazing. <laughs> from showgirls so she deserves a little bit more love for that michael what about you uh you know i i feel like we've been very lucky like peaches says to have access to a lot of the people that we want to talk to about these cult films but one person that kind of eludes me and it's it's not the answer that i think a lot of people expect me to give is a filmmaker and that's brian de palma i would love to sit with him and talk because his films especially when you talk about the intersection of queer identity and horror or cult strike a lot of different chords you know over the course of dead for filth carrie was the most referenced film in the history of my show and it's because a lot of queer people identify with carrie but then you turn around and look at some of his other movies and there's problematic queer representation but it's so it's very interesting uh that he is displays this fascination with the world of queerness and I want to talk to him about it. And I think that he would be down to have a nuanced conversation. Uh, it's just we need to get him. You know, uh, speaking about queerness and about shows that you're involved in, Michael, um, you know, it was about a, God, about, a, about a year ago, year and a quarter, that we had uh, Drac and Swan on from, from Boulay Brothers. Well, we had the Boulay Brothers, duh. Um, and we know about, of course, you know, your, your serious involvement with Dracula. Um, how'd you get involved with that? How did I get involved with Dragula? I believe Drac and Swan and I were introduced by a mutual friend of all of ours, including Peaches, Darren Stein, the writer and director of Jawbreaker. Uh, Darren, notoriously here in Los Angeles, will host uh, movie nights and drag race screening nights and various uh, kind of salons for, for, for queer folk to gather and, and mingle. And, it's, his uh, little se- it's a little secret society he runs called Squirrel Friends. Exactly. And and I'm not even kidding. And she's very serious about it. All I see is uh, that slow walk from Jawbreaker, and I just see all the drag queens walking down. (laughs) But it's not even drag queens. It's like just Darren and, you know his friends but it's 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 definitely a thing i mean i'm i guess i am in the thing but i don't go to squirrel friend screenings and drag it's it's really yeah. funny though yeah but no so one night darren uh had the boules over and the boules had already been kind of uh talking about how they wanted to work with someone who writes horror to help them with the intros for their forthcoming season which at the time would have been season three and uh we talked they were uh we kind of formed a mutual admiration society and went to a number of lunches and just got to know each other and uh there for, for fans who recall there was a huge lapse of time between season two and season three. So I had been talking to them about it for a really long time. But anyone who works in the industry kind of knows that you talk about a lot of things that ultimately don't happen. So I kind of was just like, all right, well, whatever. And then one day, and very befitting the Boulay brothers, I got a phone call late at night. And they were like, we're ready to do this if you are. And I'm like, let's go. And that the rest is history. And I, you That's know, so I fucking cool. just talked to them yesterday about the new season. So that's awesome. Are you going to remain close to that, or? Yes, yeah, I'm. I will be involved. And awesome. by the way, folks, don't forget on Dread Podcast Network, Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night podcast. You can also find it on Dread. 
So, um, Peaches, I have a little bit of a bone to pick with you, because where is this all about evil Blu-ray? <laughs> okay, well, I can tell you this. Uh, I'm not sure about the Blu-ray, per se, but we are talking, and not just talking, but there is a plan for it to finally be streaming uh, a few places, um, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. So, um that's coming. And then I think uh, we can maybe look into the Blu-ray. We've had requests for the Blu-ray. Um, you know, I, I, I shouldn't say who, but, you know, one of the distributors that does Blu-ray re-releases um, is interested. But I'm really like, I got to get it out there. It's got to be streaming, you know. Um, yeah. And yeah. So, so that is coming, finally. We've, we've, we've made arrangements. Um, but it's, it's almost like the... the uh, executive producers held on to it so long and it's been so frustrating that in some ways I, I actually think you know I talked to a publicist about it and he was like well the good news is now it's going to be a big story <laughs> well, that's true I mean, and, you know and Natasha Leone is you know bigger than ever so you know the publicist was you know kind of like hey I, I've got a story to work with and and the other thing is is all of the uh you know, actors and people who worked on the movie are, are friends, uh, which is lovely. And, you know, they're, they're willing to support the, the streaming release. Yeah, it was definitely one of those movies that I have no idea when I saw it or where I was, but I know I've seen the damn thing. <laughs> so now I want to refresh my memory. But, right. Uh, um, so, Michael, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, um, just because I kind of found it fascinating, and I, I saw you've commented on this a couple times, so excuse me if you're repeating yourself, but, you know, you're you're not only a success in the horror world, but you also have found a success in writing these Christmas movies. Can you, can you <laughs> talk, talk to me a little bit about, like, where that comes from and, like, where where you were like, you know what? I really need to sit down and write this movie from Melissa Joan Hart. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, well, you know what's interesting is they're not as divorced as you may think they are. Because the first Christmas movie that I ever wrote was a movie called A Christmas Reunion starring Denise Richards. Uh, and that movie came about because I had written a number of low-budget but well-received indie horror films that were sort of like regionally made horror films. And that's sort of what was the impetus for me to move to Los Angeles and continue work in the industry. And uh, a friend of mine who produces a lot of these movies for Lifetime and Hallmark uh, it was a fan of some of the, the horror films that I had done. And that particular year, they had sold a number of slots uh, for movies that they didn't actually have movies Four. So they had airtime for movies that didn't exist. And he called me and said, hey, uh, we have four movies and uh, they need a fifth. Could you write a Christmas movie for us quickly? I'm calling you because you have shown you can write a good movie at budget with a fast turnaround. And up until that phone call, I had never considered writing a Christmas movie, but I love a challenge. And I was like, sure. So that movie about a Christmas cookie contest starring Denise Richards and Patrick Muldoon uh, made it to television and lo and behold was a success. And it continues to air to this day. I get the numbers every year. And so the next year they asked me to do another one with Chevy Chase. And I was like, great. And next thing you know, four or five Christmas movies later, I've, I've written movies for a lot of the different networks. And that uh, parlayed itself into me writing sci-fi channel movies and thrillers for Lifetime about killer babysitters and evil stepmoms starring Vivica Fox and you know it's it's kind of a fun world but I know people are sort of fascinated by the Christmas movie thing because it seems at odds with the horror thing 
But the reality is they're both essentially cult films because they are audi- they have very dedicated audiences and they're movies with a certain set of expectations and it's just how you manipulate and deliver those things. And a lot of people who make horror movies make these movies as well. So uh, I'm just proud to be part of the little club. That's awesome. That's and good to hear. You know, hey, spending Christmas with your family can often be terrifying. So, uh, you know, I, I can see the horror in that, too, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> So also, you know, we were doing a little fiddling around about uh, your 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 partnership here, and we saw some rumblings about a and you know, forgive us if we're wrong here. You can tell us so, uh, but some rumblings of a script that you two are working on together. Is there anything that you can tell us about this? Well, it's funny because Michael and I actually have now worked on a number of different projects, um, and one of the first uh, that came to fruition. Um, even though it wasn't the first that we worked on, was a, a stage show called Fimlins, which was, um, uh, you know, our parody of Gremlins done. Actually, the, was one of the last shows I ever did. It was the Christmas season of 2019. And we, we did a show where Fifi O'Hara played Stripe and, you know, Detox played the mom and um, Ms. Cracker played the protagonist. And it was a whole, you know, drag parody of Gremlins called Fimlins. Um, what we learned through our various collaborations is that we actually really like writing together. So we have a few different projects. Um, I don't know, two or three uh, treatments. We have a docu-series that we put together this past year that we're now pitching um, that's that's out there in the world. And we have a, a feature screenplay that we're actually diving into a second draft of, which is uh, get this, a horror movie. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, it, it's actually a, um, a horror movie that's been inspired by my haunted attraction in San Francisco called Terror Vault. Um, so it's actually kind of a, a sort of a horror movie that's sort of a behind-the-scenes look at the making of a haunted attraction. Uh, but, but when maybe things are a little too haunted. And, you know, I, I would say if, if I were to give, like, the, the, the Hollywood mashup, it's it's... Um, I don't know. Well, you guys just reviewed Funhouse. Mm-hmm. We did. I listened to that. It was fabulous. Oh, and thank I, you so much. What a movie! Yeah, I had to. I was like, I have to listen to these queens. Um, and <laughs> and I and I really enjoyed your podcast, by the way. So I've subscribed, and you have a new fan. Oh, and, thanks uh, so thanks. much. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And and of course, I love um, the Final Destination movies, and that was a lot of fun too. But yeah, I, I would say that this is sort of maybe a little bit of Funhouse meets um, a lot of. John Carpenter's The Fog and a lot of Poltergeist, um, you know, kind of mashed up together. And Michael and I wrote that during the pandemic. And now we're actually we've actually had multiple meetings with, you know, an investor. So we'll see what happens. That's amazing. Well, Michael Varadi and Peaches Christ, thank you so much for being with us. But before we let you go, we need you to tell everybody where they can find you folks and Midnight Mass on social media. Tell them where to go. Peaches, you want to go first? Uh, well, I mean, I am on all of the social media stuff uh, as Peaches Christ, where I'm verified with a little blue check mark. <laughs> so don't follow any of those fake Peacheses. Uh, and um, you know, it's funny because I don't think there are any fake Peaches accounts. <laughs> I am, uh, maybe I should create some, you know, uh, just so that my verification has more meaning. But um, yeah, so so I'm there. And then the podcast, Midnight Mass, 
Um, <laughs> I think there is another Midnight Mass uh, podcast, maybe. Uh, I, I sort of saw one the other day where I was like, oh, I think that's actual church. Um, so uh, uh, we're the one, you know, um, about cult movies, and we're on, you know, Spotify and Apple and where else, Michael? Google. Google has a podcast thing now. Yeah, iTunes, uh, Podbay, Pretty Stitcher, all that stuff. Yeah, everywhere that podcasts are found. And of course, folks, we will be posting it all over the place. So make sure to hit that follow button or whatever Apple calls it. I think I think we call it follow now on Apple. I'm pretty sure, but hit it. It's it's, it's a cross. Just touch it, and then it it'll, is it'll called follow. That's yeah. that totally confused me because I was looking for Just subscribe. Changed. It did, yeah, and like, yeah. Anyway, whatever that 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 did throw me a little bit. <laughs> uh, as for me, you can follow me at Michael Verratti on Twitter and Instagram. I am verified on at least one of those places. There are a couple of fake. Ooh. Michael Ver- <laughs> and there are a couple of fake Michael Verratti accounts, believe it or not. But they're really, like, yeah. Like I found a few on Instagram, and I was just like, they're like selling Ray Ban sunglasses or whatever. And I'm Girl, like, okay, you you need to Highlander those bitches. There can be only one. <laughs> well, uh, I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna create a fake Michael Verratti account. Uh, now that now that you say it, I'm gonna stick your head on like weird you know, porno pictures and stuff, you know. I, I, I have a fake Michael uh, Verratti account, but it's only on Grinder, Michael. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll stop using it. Oh, that's not fake, honey. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody, the trailer for Midnight Mass is on iTunes now, and you can subscribe or follow or whatever they call it on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Michael Peaches Christ, thank you so much for joining us. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks thank for you. having us. Thanks for listening to another horror hookup on Friday the 13th Horror Podcast. And as always, get slayed.